0: Again, we give you praise this morning. We want to praise you now, especially for your word. We as preachers uh, do not share uh, our own ideas, our, our own thoughts, but we have this great privilege of been giving, have, having been given your inspired and inerrant word. And what a privilege it is to, to sit under your word and to hear it preached. And so I ask now, God, as Josh comes uh, here to the pulpit at Cornerstone, that you you would just speak powerfully through him, that you would give him joy, that you would give him freedom. And I pray mostly, God, that we would be sensitive to your word and to your Holy Spirit, and that you would change our hearts and minds, and that we would become more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, our, our house is full of energy. This morning was a little bit different as, uh, as I came to church. I, I came just from our men's retreat this morning. We were up at Donner, so we got up early and drove down. So I was in the house with the boys on a Sunday morning, which is rare, and uh, my six- and seven-year-old discovered my wife's shoes in the shoe storage. So uh, they found the ones with the highest heels and were having races up and down the hall. Um so there were shoes scattered everywhere, and they were just laughing the whole time. And that's kind of what life is like a lot. You have to figure out what you're going to curtail and what you're going to let go on. Um, I figured high heel shoes are fine for six- and seven-year-olds, so <laughs> we let that go. It's really good to be here. A uh, couple of reasons. One, I appreciate Adam so much. Uh, he's, been, he's been a good friend. Uh, my first meeting with Adam, um, he, he emailed and said, Hey, can we get together? I said, sure, that'll be good. And we got together, and he began to confront me for an hour or so <laughs> in love. And uh, so I, I walked away from that going, that was, that was good. I needed to hear some of those things. So um, I appreciate somebody who's willing to say the hard things. Um, so that was good. The second reason is this room, uh, Most of you, I, I don't know if you know this, but this room feels uh, very natural for, for me as we do gathering in here. You so kindly let us use your church when we host gathering in. So I've moved all these chairs many times, um, and that's a lot of fun. So my, it's actually our, my boys' favorite thing. They love the gathering in because we get to come here and move these chairs. They love to do that, and I don't know if this is bad, but they love to crawl underneath all the chairs once they're over there in the corner, and they hide out in there. So uh, I know where to look for them when I'm missing them. So thank you so much for letting us use your building. Um, it's a blessing for us. Our church loves doing the gathering in and, and so thank you for that. Romans 14 is our, our text this morning and it can be somewhat of a controversial passage. Let me just say for, um, the kids as well. I, I know sometimes it can be difficult and I'll just assure you that I will not go longer than 90 minutes, an hour and a half. So, um, that's a joke. I will be shorter slightly. And, uh, I'll just say if there's one thing you can do, just my my main goal, especially for you as kids, but it's for all of us, is that as you leave here, you have a a greater appreciation for Christ and a a greater desire to follow after him. And so um, don't worry about catching everything that I say. You probably won't. And if the adults are honest, they won't get it either. There'll be times when they kind of zone out for a moment and think about things that are coming up next week. And then hopefully they'll come back at some point. And if there's just one thing you can grab that, that shows how great Christ is, take that away with you and and use it as you go through your week to remember. And really, this is the point of the sermon. It's almost the point of all of my sermons is that Jesus Christ is better than anything else you can pursue. And um, and he's pursued you in such a way that that you can't help but love him. So that's going to be the main point. As we look at Romans chapter 14 verse, um, we are going to go through um, from 13 all the way through the end of the chapter there's a a couple of sports deceptions that have been very popular. I don't know if you've seen these, but one involves a basketball game where a shot is needed, and it's usually a, a younger game. And so what they'll do is they'll put somebody in the corner of of um, the court, and he will get down on all fours, and he will begin to bark like a dog. I don't know if you've seen anything like this. So he will bark like a dog, and as the other team is clearly perplexed by this, they all look at the guy on the floor barking like a dog, while the other team inbounds the ball and gets an easy basket. I don't know what you think about that. It's pretty deceptive, but it's kind of funny. The other one that, that I've seen that is, uh, it's on the football field. I know sports takes don't work for everyone, but hopefully this works for you. Um, that the, the center will hike the ball, which is how you start a football play, but as he's doing that, the quarterback who takes the ball will say, or the center actually will say, I think there's something with th- wrong with this ball. Will you go check it out? So he passes it through his legs, which is a legal way to start the play, to the quarterback who begins to walk off the field saying, Coach, we need a new ball. And as soon as he clears the line of players, he runs up the field for a touchdown. And so, uh, yeah, it's not right, is it? But it's funny, and you, as you can <laughs> see that There's this the deception that goes on often in sports. And, and, and if you think about it, that, that's what plays are. But it gets you thinking... One thing, all the while something else is happening. And I think the ultimate aim of our passage this morning is to show that when it comes to sin, sin wants you thinking one thing, and it's got a a devious plot completely on the other side in an area we might not even see it. And that's how sin operates. And we're going to look at this kind of deceptive nature of sin in in three ways this morning as we look through Romans chapter 14. um, And and in order to do that... uh, my my church has the, the, uh, the, the, we've been through this whole section. And so when I, when I get to Romans 14, they know what preceded this. And so I just have to lay out, and I'm going to try and do it in under two minutes. Because without Romans 1 through 13, uh, Romans 14 comes completely out of context. So real quick, this is essentially what Romans is about. I don't know the last time you studied Romans, but Romans... Um, Paul says that Romans is about the gospel of God. It, it, it's God's righteousness wrapped up in the gospel. And he says, uh, the way that he lays this out is, he says, first of all, you need to understand that you're a sinner. And there's two ways that you and I sin. One is that people can run hard after pleasure. And whatever it is that brings them pleasure, they will run hard after and, and Paul says, eventually, God's just going to give you over to that kind of stuff. He says, but there's another way that you and I run from God. And maybe many of us in this room fall into that category. The other way that we run from God is that we pursue good works as a means of building up our own character before God and offer it to him and say, look at how good I am, God. And and that's often what we do. I know that's the trap that I fell into as a, as a child, as I would. As I was raised, I would bring all these good works and say, God, look how good I am. You are so lucky to have me. I wouldn't say that out loud, but in my heart, I was boasting of my own righteousness. And Paul says, those are the two ways we run from God and we're his enemies. He says in Romans 5, though, but God sent his own son for us and and he is our righteousness and and we are declared righteous and we have peace with God because of the work of Jesus Christ and and so as a result of that we have so many benefits one of these these benefits is that we are no longer slaves to sin sin uh, gets us and and it says you must follow me in order to to be satisfied and and so paul says now that you are justified declared righteous you don't have that we're we are also are, are released from the law the law uh, shows us that we could never attain the righteousness of god and so paul says you're released from trying to gain that righteousness and then he also says in chapter eight that we have the spirit who helps us and ultimately reveals god's love to us and it's this love that that um God has demonstrated in his son that if he's given us his own son, he's not going to spare anything from us. And so these are all the, the fruits of righteousness. And as you go get on to verse 12, um, I, I don't know if, if Pastor Adam has talked in this way, but um, one of the clear things from Scripture is that there are indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives um, indicate something. They, they tell us who we are. And Romans 1 through 11 are are mi- mainly indicatives. They are all about who we are in Christ. It, These are the facts because of the work of Christ. Imperatives are commands. This is what you must do. Paul reserves the this is what you must do until chapter 12, which is critical. And if you follow through, especially the letters of Paul, you will see this again and again and again. Paul doesn't tell us what to do until he tells us who we are. Because if our doing does not flow from who we are, then we risk running from God by offering up our own righteousness. Does that make sense? And so this is what Romans says. This is who you are, 1 through 11. Now start doing. And some of the things he tells us to do, this is longer than two minutes, which I said I know. So I'm going to hurry up. It's a great book, and I can't help but talk about it. But this is what he says. He says, um, "Now now that you know who you are in Christ... There's some people I want you to love. I want you to love your fellow believers. I want you to love your enemies. This is 12 and 13. I want you to love the authorities. I want you to, God has placed authorities uh, over you because that, that's how he keeps things running well. Like a, 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 and then he says, I also want you to love your neighbor, those who are around you. And then he says this, I want you to love the weak. And the weak are, the weak are those who um, perhaps have thought something is a sin or they're not sure. And and you come along and you know that something is clean and it's good, but the weak aren't quite sure. And, and um, they, they think that perhaps in this situation that, that eating meat is a violation of God's law. And so they eat only veggies, perhaps. Or, or they think that drinking wine is a, a violation of God's law. And so they refrain. refrain and, and whatever it is, there is a sense that um, they're not quite sure what is going on. And Paul says, would, would you just bear with these people? And not rub what is right, what you know to be true in their face. And that's the context of this morning as we get into what sin is. And, And this first point as we look at it is this, as we think about the deception of sin, is sin distracts us from the issue. Sin distracts us from the issue. And this is verses 13 through 16. Let me read these for you. Paul says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. He says don't pass judgment and he says don't pass judgment because he's afraid that those who know that there's no unclean food, that God has declared everything clean. He's afraid that those people who know that are passing judgment on those who are withholding from eating certain types of food and they're looking down on their weaker brothers because of this. And so Paul says... Let's not do that. Let's not pass judgment. Instead of passing judgment as our rule, as we look around the room, and this is what Christians love to do. I know it happens in my church. We look around the room and we look at the the, the different freedoms that we have in life, whether it's where where you send your, your kids to school, what kind of movies you watch. There's an endless array of things that we can look at. And we begin to judge and say, that's not the way that I live life. And Paul says, quit sitting around and passing judgment. Instead, this is your goal. Make sure that you don't put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I have to speak for a, a couple minutes on this because this is one of those things that is critical to understanding uh, how we are to live with one another in, in peace and unity. What is it? What does it mean to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother? Now, one of the things it doesn't mean, and, and this is what often happens and what we get confused about, is a stumbling block is often used by somebody who is uh, morally righteous, and, um, and there comes an issue that says this is a, a gray area. It's neither black nor white, and, and oftentimes we want to make things black and white so that we, can, uh, we, we have a better or clearer understanding of how to live. And so um, it's that card that you pull out at the last minute when the biblical arguments run out that says, okay, but what about the weaker brother? And we have to understand what the weaker brother is. The weaker brother is somebody who is is timid at this point. They're not sure. They don't understand. There are those who pose as a weaker brother who say, no, I know that's wrong and it should be wrong for you. And and maybe I don't have all of the biblical data. But what I do know is you can't make a weaker brother stumble. And it typically silences the argument. Most people who apply this principle of weaker brother never um, would actually partake in whatever activity this may be. But they use it as a way to silence any further discussion on the issue. And so um, when you think about it, it becomes this way to, um, to, to stop anything that may be on the fringe of doing something wrong. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Think of all of the things that we would have to um, avoid. Going to movies. There's such a variety of opinions about what kind of movie or even if you should go to the theater. Dancing. Mixed bathing. Do you know what mixed bathing is? That was always confusing to me as a kid. I I didn't know what mixed bathing was. I always thought, who wants to bathe with one another anyways? What does mixed bathing have? It's actually a guy and a girl swimming in the same swimming pool, um, which is uh, looked down upon in certain groups of of believers. Caffeine or tobacco or reading Harry Potter or sending your kids to public schools or wearing flip-flops to church or Drinking alcohol or reading any Bible other than the KJV or listening to rock music or going to church on Saturday rather than Sunday or playing video games or women wearing pants. And we could go on and on and on about all of the things that we might use the card of don't cause a weaker brother to stumble. The church would be held hostage by people with the most concern. So you get that. And this isn't what Paul is talking about. You say, so what's he talking about? What does this mean? And let me give you um, maybe an illustration. So there is a a woman in our church who's been saved out of a um, kind of a hippie new age background. Any new age hippie, post hippie? So um, she was explaining to me that, I don't know if this will connect with you, but she said, I would have no problem participating in a drum circle. Do you know what a drum circle is? Where people sit around and play the drums, like uh, the the djembe and those kinds of things. So that that I, I can understand that, but I could never do yoga, because my th- that that's kind of my background. And as they talk about some of that meditation, it, as I hear that, I think, um, I maybe that's right, and, and my faith would began to come under attack. And so imagine the situation where you're her friend and you come up and say, look, there's this great coupon. I can get two weeks of yoga for $10. Let's do it. And she says, no, I don't, I don't think I should do that. I don't think I should do yoga. And you proceed to, to push her and say, you know what? Yoga is just exercise. It doesn't have to be this spiritual thing. And as she looks at you, she says, okay. And in her mind, she thinks, I don't, I want to be looked at as immature. I mean, if it's just exercise, what's the big deal? And as you draw her into yoga, perhaps her mind is drifted away from faith in the gospel and you have crushed her and you have ruined her, as Paul has said. And if you want a biblical case, there's a, a case from Paul, if you remember from Acts 16, says, Paul came also to Derby in, in Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So his, Paul asked Timothy to be circumcised as an adult. And without going into the details of that, Kids, you may ask your parents later about what that entails, but that's kind of horrific. And Paul says, Timothy, let's do this so that we can involve ourselves in ministry. If you know the story of Galatians, it's completely different. Paul says this, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And then he says it even more emphatically in Galatians 5. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And so in that case, what you have is Paul on one hand saying, Timothy... I want you to get circumcised. I know that's completely awful. And I, I, I know this is a lot to ask of you, but if we're going to have ministry, this has got to take place. And then in another situation, he says, look, if you get circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are completely ruining the gospel. And so what we learn by that is that there are cases by which we uphold certain standards and we, we um, include certain activities and there are others whereby we might ruin the gospel by avoiding them. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, if I'm called to preach the gospel among a lot of people who are cultural teetotalers, I'll give up alcohol for the sake of the gospel. But if they start saying, you cannot be a Christian and drink alcohol, I'll reply, pass the port, or I'll think I'll have a glass of bourgeois with my meal, which I think is some kind of wine. Um, But the point is this... um, where these people are at, what they need, whatever part of the gospel they're missing, I'm willing to give them. And so what's the main point? Oftentimes we hijack this passage and we use it as the card that says, avoid anything that's on the rem- uh, even remotely wrong and make sure that others do as well. And Paul says something different. He says this going on to verse 14. He says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. It's not a matter of whether it's clean or unclean. You see how sin distracts us from the issue? If, if you love your Bible, you love to argue through things and say what's right and what's wrong. And Paul says, we've got to move past the point where we're dealing with what's right and wrong in this. And we've got to start thinking about who? to Start thinking about each other. Rather than kind of announcing and parading our rights and what's right and, and what the biblical arguments are for what we can and cannot do, can we just look around and assess where people are at? Figure out how to love them? And You see how concerning this is. He says in verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And then it gets very disturbing. He says, for by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. If we walk around and proclaim and parade our rights at the risk of a brother who is weak and fragile in his faith, we might destroy the one for whom Christ died. And so sin distracts us. It says, hey, look, you fight for what's right and wrong. You you get into the word and you figure out what we can and cannot do. And then you uphold that. And Paul says something different. Can we just look around and, and love one another? Don't get distracted. That's what sin wants. It wants us figuring out what's right and wrong and who's doing what and who's passing judgment and how can they do that and how can they say that? And can we just love each other in this. Sin distracts us very, very easily. And secondly, sin is cleverly disguised. Sin distracts us, but it's also cleverly dis- disguised as we move into verse 17. It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I think in America, one of greatest, uh, Satan's greatest ploys, and, and I see this in America, and I, I see this in my own life, and I see this in, in, in my friends in our church, and um, if he can get us thinking that life is about eating and drinking, and, and what does that mean? Life is just about normal living. just It's the normal life, you know, where you, 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 you have the food, you have the drink, you have the... The vacations, the, the pool, the green grass, the early retirement, the, the nice 401k. If, if Satan could get us thinking, just live life normally. He's done a masterful job. It's, he, he doesn't need the immorality, the lion. Of course he uses that. But that's not his secret tactic. His secret tactic is to say, hey, just be normal. I mean, enjoy life. You know, what's wrong with that? And Paul says, look, we need to understand that the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. What is it about? He says it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And and these are fantastic. He says, first of all, it's about righteousness. And you know what righteousness is? There's Two sides of it. One is the righteousness of God. It's that kind of righteousness where where Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and um, and and God is saying, "You know what? I'm done. I'm done with these people, and and I'll send something, but it's not going to be me." And Moses says, "I'm not going anywhere unless you send me your, unless you show me your glory, unless your glory comes with us." And God says, "You can't see my glory." You can't see my righteousness, so I'm going to put you in this rock, and I'm going to hide you, and I'm going to pass by, and as I go, you can look at my back, because you can't stare my righteousness, my glory in the face. His righteousness and his glory is the type of glory that causes Isaiah to fall on his face and and scream out, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's the righteousness of God, and the beauty of that, and why the kingdom of God is about righteousness is because in sending his son, who lived righteously and then died in our place, he says, now guess what? That righteousness can be yours by faith. That's the kingdom of God. It's not eating and drinking. Eating and drinking is nice. The pool, the green grass, the early retirement, those are nice things, but that's not the kingdom of God. It's the fact that you spit in the face of God and his righteousness, and he turned around and said, now I'll give it to you by faith in my son. It's the righteousness of God. He says, it's not just the righteousness of God. That would be good, but it's more. It's about peace as well. And peace is peace with God. As we are born, before we do anything, we are enemies of God. We're not neutral towards God. It's not as if we're indifferent to God. Ah, God, whatever. It's that we hate God. We are haters of him. And he says, now, through the work of my son, you now have peace with God. We stand in a place where we call God Abba, Father. We call him Daddy. Daddy. Because of the work of Christ. That's what the kingdom of God is. Then lastly, he says it's about joy. The kingdom of God is about joy. It means that... And here's the real answer. There is nothing else. There is nothing else that can bring you satisfaction. I always tell this to my kids. That there's something that they want. Lately, it's been yo-yos. I don't know how these fads come about. But now it's yo-yos. Actually, yo-yos was a month ago. Now it's hats. So um, I always explain to them because... When they want a yo-yo, life will stop if they don't get the, a yo-yo. And it's not just like a Dunkin' yo-yo. It's got to be like a grind machine. You know what I'm saying on this? It's got to be the certain type of yo-yo. And so we always have these talks. Look, you can get this yo-yo, but you know what's going to happen in about three weeks. In fact, I'll start the stopwatch. You'll see how close. In about three weeks, this yo-yo, you will have no idea where it is. And you will have no desire to find it in three weeks. No, Dad, I'm, I'm going to love this yo-yo. No, you're not. You think you will, but in three weeks, you won't know what this yo-yo is. And I, I hit that every time. I'm so smart at this point as a father already. <laughs> three weeks, but you know what? I, you know why I know that is because I see that in my own life. I've got to have this. And this joy is always fleeting. I, th- that, that's why the kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking. How many meals have you looked forward to? This happens every Thanksgiving, doesn't it? Where you look at Thanksgiving and you go, oh, it's going to be so good. But you know what the end result is. You're going to be miserable sitting at the table trying to force down a piece of pie because you feel like you should eat dessert. It's (laughs) awful. And we sit there and we say, this is great. All the turkey and mashed potatoes. And it ends up, it's it's not all that great. And we think that the kingdom of God is this mark on earth that we can get. And Paul says, it's so much more. It's righteousness and, and it's peace and it's joy. That's that's really what we're fighting for. And sin disguises itself. It says, no, just just be satisfied with you know, you got good food. You, you know how to add all the right spices. You've got good drink. Just you've got the lawn, the early retirement, whatever it is, you've got that. Just relax. Take it easy. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, and you know the chapter about the resurrection. And he says, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, what I want you to do is just eat and drink. <laughs> just live normally not in excess i don't think that's his point his point is this just just go out and live life enjoy it enjoy life if there's no resurrection but if there's a resurrection you give everything for the sake of the gospel because it means everything so paul says look this kingdom of god is not about eating and drinking that's how sin disguises itself i don't know if you've ever been to disneyland um kids disneyland is pretty amazing place isn't it uh But imagine if I took my nine-year-old son to Disneyland and we parked in the parking lot if you've been there and then the next thing that you do because you have to park so far away is to get on the tram, right? So you get on that tram and imagine if I was there with my son and we got on the tram and we are riding towards the gate of Disneyland and he is just whooping and hollering, this is the best thing in the world. And we get to the gate and it's time to get off. And he says, Dad, what are we doing? I said, Bud, let's go into Disneyland. He said, oh, this is great. What, what do you mean? Let's ride the tram. Bud, there, there's so much more inside. No, seriously, there's like characters. There's, a, there's, these, there's these roller coasters that will drive you crazy. It's awesome. And there's funnel cake and there's cotton candy. I mean, we could eat ourselves sick in there. No, Dad, this tram is awesome. And imagine if for the full day, we just, we just rode the tram in circles. We get home and somebody says, how was Disneyland? Awesome. The tram's amazing. <laughs> what would you say to him? The tram? What about every? What about Space Mountain? Did you go on Space Mountain? Space? What are you talking about? That's exactly what Satan wants from us. We have the righteousness, the peace, and the joy, and we're content with riding the tram around the parking lot. Paul says, that's what sin wants. Just be satisfied with the little things. Don't engage. Don't dig into the righteousness and joy and peace that God has for you. And then finally sin is devastating. Number three sin is devastating. He rehashes some things here. And then he takes it one step further. He says this first of all in verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. You get that? Don't proclaim your rights. In such a way that somebody who's watching you says. I don't know if that's right. But okay. Okay. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Get that? It's all clean. That's not even an argument. But if you, and, and he's rehashing this, if you do this at the sake of somebody else, you're making a mistake. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. You know that this is true. You know you can eat meat, drink wine. Don't make sure everyone else understands that as well. That's not your main goal. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. What he says is, look, if you understand that meat and wine are good, you are blessed. I mean, it's a good thing. I, if anything that I've said where I, I talk about the, the eating and the drinking and the food, I love food. I, I, I love Green grass. I love pool. I love all that stuff. I do. And, and so that, that Paul says it's a blessing if you can engage in the things of the world uh, that bring pleasure, but they're not ultimate things. Verse 23, and, and, and here's where he takes it a step further. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you doubt while you eat... You are condemned and condemned isn't just, oh, you're in a bad spot. Condemned is you're guilty of separation from God. And so he says, whatever you do that is not of faith is sin. And what this does is it absolutely blows the lid off of sin, because we often think of sin in kind of two separate lists, like here's the the things I can't do. Here are the things that I must do. And so we check the boxes and Paul says, oh, it's much worse than that. Whatever is not of faith is sin. What do you mean whatever is not of faith is sin? Well, what we know faith to be is, we know that, that Jesus Christ lived the life that you and I should have lived. He, he lived perfectly. And then he died the death that you and I deserved. And, and then he rose again in victory over sin and death. And by our belief in that, that that is what makes us right before him, that's faith. That that, that that makes it, that's the only thing that makes us right and and so um he says when you do anything that's not of faith it's sin he said what, what does that mean if you do anything to make yourself something that you aren't it's of sin does, does that make sense if you were doing anything that you say i need this i must have this Then it's of sin. And so here is somebody, in this situation, here is somebody who um, is looking at meat and you are sitting down to eat meat and they are going to eat the meat, but they don't have faith. How do they not have faith? Uh, They're not sure if this is right. Why would you do something that you think might be a sin if you have faith? Because you think that thing may bring you life. You see what happens here. Here is the gospel that says you have life. You have life. Here's Christ. He died for you and he, he lived for you. Then he died for you and he rose again. So you have life. And then you're sitting here going, but maybe I need this. And, and there might be a couple of reasons why you would eat one. You may look at that food and say, I just love meat and I will not be happy unless I have that meat. And so what you have done is you've denied the gospel of Jesus Christ. that says here was your complete joy and satisfaction. Or the other reason is you may say this. There's that meat and I should eat it, but I, I don't know if it's right. But here's Josh and he is chowing down on that steak. And if I don't eat this steak, he's going to look at me and say, what an immature believer. And so I'm going to eat in order to make Josh happy in both ways. What has happened is his faith has been violated. He has doubted that God is all good and all satisfying and all joyful. And he says, I need something else to make life right. Now, you see how that blows the lid off of sin? <laughs> You think of anything in life, you do it without faith, and it's sin. Do you get that? One one thing that I struggle with uh, at times, do you you go to church in faith? Do you go to church because you have everything you need in Christ and you can't wait to celebrate him, or do you go to church because, you know, if I don't go this morning, Susie across the way is going to know I didn't show up. She's going to start to think I don't really care about church, and you see what you've done there. You've moved into, "I must have Susie's approval." And Susie, if you're here I'm sorry, I didn't know that I must have Susie's approval in order for me to be happy." You get that? I mean, think of all that you do that with. And if you're maybe here this morning and you're not saved, and you say, "See, I know what these Christians, they love to control everything, and you're seeking to bring everything under control and, and to be you want me controlled." And I would just say this to you. The reality is we're all controlled by something. Whatever it is that you look to for life is controlling you. If you think that the job um, and the next promotion is going to bring you ultimate satisfaction, then you are going to be absolutely controlled by that job. If you think maybe having a relationship, if if I could just find that special someone, then life is going to make sense. You are controlled by finding that relationship. The reality is we're all under control. The Christian is controlled by someone who's given their son in your place, and bruised him and crushed him so that you might live. That's the one we're giving our lives for. So it makes sense. But would you open up your life in that way to look at faith? Are you living in faith? Is your work done in faith? Are you working in such a way that you have everything you need? Or is your job going to provide that last ounce of satisfaction that is finally going to put you over the edge where you have everything? Faith is tricky, isn't it? Is your family, do you live, do you operate, do you parent in such a way that says, I I have everything I need? Or are your kids the avenue by which you are going to gain some type of satisfaction and completion? And the result is disturbing as he says, it leads to condemnation. What does that mean? When Paul says, whoever doubts when he eats is condemned. Hebrews 3.12 says it this way, Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Once your faith falters and you begin to think that other things are the secret to your happiness, and you begin to pursue those, This isn't a matter of you losing your faith. It's a matter of saying that you never believed the right thing in the first place. And when we step in front of someone who is weak and fragile, and we say, you need to eat that, it's clean. And they begin to violate whatever faith was there. It's a slippery slope until there's no belief at all. How many times have you seen that? I'm sure you have those friends and and relatives that you know that proclaimed Christ and all of a sudden a a tricky issue came up in life where they had to choose between their faith and and um, a relationship and what was revealed is that this person found a lot more faith in having the right kind of relationship than having a savior what we believe is critical so Paul says understand this lack of faith leads to devastation The Christian is the one who believes again and again and again. That doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. It means that when we make them, we see them, we confess them and say, I was believing the wrong thing there. For a moment, I thought that my family was going to satisfy me. Now I know my family's a mess because I'm leading them, and I know that. And so I need help somewhere else. God, you are my righteousness. You're my peace. You're my joy. It is so easy to get caught up in what things look like. And the boxes that need to be checked. And God is saying, and Paul is saying, I want you to to love and be satisfied in Christ. Are you a box checker? Or is your heart satisfied with Christ? When I was a senior in college, uh, just began dating my wife, and she was a freshman in college. I was a Bible major, schooled in all things Bible, and she was coming out of a public school, first year in a Bible college. And we had one class that would match up. And so we figured it out. It was a New Testament introduction class. And so this was the only class we could take together before I graduated and moved on to seminary. And so we took that class together. And um, I'm a four-year Bible student. It's going to be a breeze for me. I mean, she goes to church, but she comes from a public school. She doesn't know a whole lot of Bible. So we set up a little friendly competition. And the, the heart of this class were these response papers where we would read Scripture and then we'd write down a summary and a personal response to that passage where we were convicted and, and swayed. I, I'm a box checker. I would do that work. I would pump it out. I would, you know, I'd have three or four pages on Romans or whatever. She would have a novel on Romans and it was just engaging with the text and we'd get our, our papers back I would have like a big fat red C on the top of mine. And she would have all this writing from the professor with this A plus on there. And so great, great insight. And I'm looking at it going, I'm doing the work. I don't get it. And she was engaging in such a way that her heart was revealed for what it is. I'm trying to get the grade and get out. And she's, she's interacting with scripture that says this is real life. And on a more practical level, I think oftentimes we operate that in life. As you go to church and you read your Bible and you share your faith, all those things are so good. But are you checking the box or is it coming out of this satisfaction that says, I have this faith in God, I have this righteousness and peace and joy that comes only from God. There's nothing better. That's what I want to live for. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word and for how clear it is. Lord, especially this morning as it points to, to sin, how unsatisfying it is, and, and to our, our need to love one another. Lord, I, I pray for this church, I pray for my own heart, that our, our passion would be so grounded in the real things of the kingdom, righteousness and peace and joy, That the eating and drinking of this world, while good, does not take the front seat. Lord, make us so satisfied with who you are. So satisfied with what is real and eternal and lasting. That the good things of this world, we we could take or leave. They're not important to us. They're good to be enjoyed, but they don't mean everything. Lord, make us a a people passionate for you. People satisfied in you people who know that we make mistakes but also know that we have a savior who died for those mistakes and all he asks is that we confess he's faithful and just to forgive us Lord, thank you for your word thank you that it's living and active and sharp and, and lord even as i'm a, a fallible man trying to explain your truth take the things that maybe i've presented out of balance and and do your work through your spirit in these people's lives that that we know your work does and we know your word does. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.